All right. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Gift Conversations podcast hosted by Sam Beard. Sam is a former advisor for eight U.S. presidents from Richard Nixon through Barack Obama. Sam's created six different initiatives in his illustrious career, and these programs have each positively impacted over 50 million Americans. And with that, Sam, I'm going to turn the show over to you and our incredible guest. Welcome, everyone. Thank you for joining us. I'm Sam Beard, founder and president of Gift Connect. Today, we have the privilege of having Dr. Roberta Golenkoff with us. Dr. Golenkoff is a top research scientist and prolific author at the University of Delaware. She is renowned worldwide as a leader in early childhood development, ages zero to five. This means that Roberta, with her research and writings, changes the world. Her breakthrough research and her ideas change the way that on-the-ground practitioners all around the world treat newborns and toddler, toddlers. At UDEL, she holds the prestigious H. Rodney Sharp Chair in the School of Education and Department of Linguistics. She also runs the Child's Play Learning and Development Laboratory. Roberta, we're so honored to have you with us today. Thank you, but my friends in psychology will not be happy that we didn't mention that I'm also in the psychology department. The, I just know you're a top psychologist, and now we know. We were Here it is. <laughs> so you are one of the world's leading research scientists. What got you started? I always liked kids, and I knew I was going to be some kind of psychologist. It was kind of the family business. Um, I... I love using my noggin and thinking about difficult problems and how kids learn because the first five or so years of life are so dynamic. And I mean, think about your own children in the first year, how dramatically they change. They start out what appears to be little vegetables, right? And you feed and water them and they keep getting bigger and bigger and more and more responsive. Well, why does that happen? How does that happen? How can we support children in that kind of development? You know, what I do, Roberta, is I try to talk to so many people who don't think about zero to three. And I want to make the dramatic point. And so I, take, I tell them to take their finger and put it down as low as your arm stretches and then zoom it up. And just imagine that that's the brain science of the first three years. And that creativity is never replicated. And then in year four, it's a good year. And then five is a good year. And then pretty much for the rest of your life, it just sort of goes goes down. So I just try to make that point because a lot of people don't hear it. And pe people begin to think that, that learning begins in school. Nope. Learning begins in the womb. And we know that because when you ask pregnant women to... Uh, sing songs or read a story while their child is in utero, they will remember that when they come out of the womb and they will recognize their mother's voice reading it as opposed to a strange females. So they are learning from the get-go. And it's not that we start to decline at age five. We continue to learn throughout our lives. We continue to add brain cells. But the dramatic period of the first three or so years of life cannot be denied. Children 
think about the things children learn. They learn motor development. They learn what emotions mean and how to express them. They learn language. That's absolutely crucial for their development. And these things take place so rapidly. You're the author of 17 books, and I love the titles. Becoming Brilliant, and Einstein Never Used Flashcards. Tell us the science of raising successful children. Is this accepted by almost all scientists? And what is your basic message for any parent? Children need food and water. This is obvious, but it's more than that. They need to be stimulated. They need to be in relationships and they need to interact with other people. If you don't have the opportunity to interact with other people, be they peers or caregivers of any sort, you will not grow up to be the person you need to be. Because we've learned so much from interacting with others. Children also need to be supported in other ways. We need to keep our children away from lots of violent media, for example, because our kids don't need to see that. There's nothing gained by exposing our children to scary violence. What does that mean? That means in today's world, turn off the news when your kid comes into the room, right? So there are many things that we can do to support young children's development. And the first three years of life is unique for the amount of learning that takes place at that time. So at Gift Connect, we stress that age three is a critically important determinant. How important is the time from a baby's conception to age three? So one way to think about it is um, who conceived you? Who conceived you really matters. Because if you have the opportunity to be born into an environment that will be stimulating to you, nurturing, caring, and supportive, you will grow into being a different kind of human than if those qualities are lacking in your world. And every child deserves that kind of support and nurturance. And my personal goal has always been to try and do the research and support what we know about how important those early years are for children's development. I want all parents to know this. Does the first three years of life have an important impact on later mental health issues? Yes, but it's not just mental health, it's physical health. It's, it's pretty remarkable. Um, there's a scale that people call ACEs, which enables people to chart how many traumatic and unfortunate experiences people have experienced in their lives. And there's a childhood version. And when children experience many challenges and trauma, longitudinal studies that come in much later to follow the child's progress now as an adult, find that their health is literally affected poorly if they have had unfortunate early experiences. The same thing is true with their mental health. The first three years of life is when we learn who we can trust and whether the world itself is a trustworthy place. Those years are really important for young children. It doesn't mean we can't make up for things that happened in the first three years by providing 
uh, remediation and intervention of various sorts. But if we can make those changes early before we need to remediate by using prevention, we're well ahead of the game. One thing I've heard, Roberta, is that, that some parents, I suppose they're so eager for the children to be successful that they're consciously uh, they're constantly scolding them and constantly uh, demeaning them and telling them they're not really good and they, they need to be better. And I think that every baby that's born wants to be loved and lovable. Yes. And if, you so idea, if you get the idea that, you, uh, that you're not loved, it comes out later in many bad ways. We, we all want that. The personal relationships that we have with the people closest to us are pretty much the most important thing in the world to us. And children need to know that they are loved and accepted. They should never be called names, except, you know, funny ones like bunny face, you know. But if it's not a loving name, it, it should not be used on a child. And rather than scolding children, the current thinking documents the fact that if children are distracted when they're young, that works very well. And also, if once they understand some language, if children can hear why they shouldn't do whatever it was they were doing, that really helps. Another thing is giving kids choices. Do you want your juice or do you want the milk? When you say that to a kid, the kid feels like they have some power. And that's really important. And parents can easily do that to avoid engaging in this blame game and making the child feel they've done something terribly wrong. One thing I, I in, in our family, I had a wonderful family and my father was a very nice man, but he really didn't do that much, many things with our, us children. And so when my children were born, I did everything. I ran around, I rolled on the floor, I did everything. Then I learned, I started to learn about zero to three and everybody needs to know much more about it. So one of the things is talk all the time. So we made a mistake. We, when dinner time came, we, we would put them in front of the Disney cartoons and the TV <laughs> instead of in the high chair talking to them all the time. And then serve and return. No one's ever heard of serve and return. So I was always serving, serving, serving. And, and, uh, Dr. Beebe at Columbia, uh, she points out that here's the, the new baby. And then if you do this, with your fingers, you're serving and then you stop. And then the baby wants to be loved and lovable. So then the baby's arm will go up and they'll do it. And if you do, if you say goo, 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 or if you say real words, like give, give the baby a choice, that's serving and then stop and let the child uh, respond because that develops your prefrontal cortex, which is your executive function. Is it, so does that make sense to you? It, it, it does, but I want to be careful. I don't want people waking their babies up in the middle of the night to talk about death and taxes, you know? When we say <laughs> all the time, we don't really mean all the time. It's okay if your child is not constantly engaged with you. Serve and return starts even before the baby is talking. It starts a nonverbal communication that takes place when you look into your baby's eyes. And as Bibi points out, if you stick your tongue out to a newborn, they're going to stick their tongue out at you. So there's already a kind of um, 
primitive reciprocity that occurs. And the thing that's most shocking to people, right after that baby is born, they lock eye contact with you. There's somebody in there from the beginning, and it's our job to nurture that person and help that person come out and realize its full potential. And that doesn't happen for every family in the United States or in the world. A lot of it has to do with poverty. We know, we have done tons of research on the negative impact of poverty on children. And we know what it takes to get rid of it. It's a question of the will. We, we know how to provide the kinds of environments for children, young children as well as children in school, that will foster their development and make them excited about learning. It's a question of wanting to do it. A few days ago at the Brookings Institute in Washington, you launched your new book, Making Schools Work, Bring right. the Science of Learning to Joyful Classroom Practice. Now, you and your partner, Kathy Hirsch-Pasek, bemoan the impact of school shutdowns during COVID. And then you called for the proper assessment of performance in our schools. What you said is our students can learn to memorize content, but we're not teaching them to use the content to solve problems. Tell us more. So what is making schools work about and why were we motivated to write it? Uh, one of the things you may know is that teachers are fleeing the profession. Why should that be? It's because teachers have no autonomy. They literally have to be on the same page as the other teachers in the grade. We have to give teachers back their autonomy. When we ask children what they think of school, a common word is boring, right? Why should that be? Why shouldn't learning be joyful? So what we did in making schools work was we took six principles of learning, which we've culled from the literature, how children learn best. And a lot of that has to do with social interaction, with engagement, and with being active. And we also studied the literature to come up with the six C's, skills that children need to succeed in the 21st century, just as we do. Content, which is what schools emphasize, and rightly so to some degree, it's pretty much the only thing that they talk about. When we know that there are these other skills like communication, collaboration, creative innovation, critical thinking, and confidence that children need to thrive. Um, I went to a, a benefit for the worldwide orphans this weekend in New York and learned that my six C's are very popular around the world, which I didn't know. Um, because people so resonate to the idea that there are skills that we should be teaching in addition to content and that our schools are not doing that. And kids are having a bad time as our teachers. We can change it. We know what to do. We believe that our schools are in crisis and that a properly funded policy focused on zero to three can be transformational and elevate U.S. literacy and workforce readiness. How do you see that? There's no question in my mind, given the importance of the first three years of life, that if we can provide appropriate, positive, enriching daycare 
experiences or home visitation from experts coming into the home and working with the parent as an advocate for the parent and child. Those kinds of things we know, it's been documented, make a big difference for school readiness. We are studying now in my lab the kinds of talk that parents have with their kids and which of those topics seems to contribute most to school readiness. But the bottom line is there has to be interactive back and forth, serve and return, conversational duets. That's how kids get ready for school because without even realizing it, we tell them so much about the world. You and Kathy are important United States and global leaders in play with. Play with your newborns and toddlers. Talk directly to mothers and fathers about what do you recommend for them to do to give their children the best start in life by play with. It is impossible for me to underscore how important it is to engage in play. And one way to do that is to point out that all the mammals we are aware of engage in play. There's somebody just did a study where they found that bees play. They like to push around wooden balls, uh, octopi play. I mean, it's remarkable. So obviously play has a very important role to serve in the development of our children. Starting from the get-go, we wanna first start by talking and interacting with them and little by little, seeding them more and more of the control of the interaction that we have with them and getting down and dirty on the floor with them and continuing to play with them throughout their lives. We need play too. Our play may take different forms, but the kinds of things that happen during play are very important for brain development and for us. One of the things that I've heard is that you don't have to have fancy toys. Nope. The, you, you make up anything. You take a pan and make it an airplane. Take yeah. any piece of paper you have and you can yeah. draw on it. You can do all sorts of things. So you don't have to have fancy toys. There was a great done in Jamaica, Sam, where they were giving children food supplements because the children were not growing adequately. The food supplements by themselves turned out to be inadequate. The children were not thriving because they were not stimulated. Now, these were very, very poor families, but the researchers went in and took household objects and show the parents how these household objects can be turned into playthings. You can take a cup and you can turn it upside down and talk about it as being a hut. And who lives in that hut? And what are they doing right now? What do you think? You know, there are so many things, so many ways you can use your imagination with everyday objects. Fancy toys are not what it's about. Children find the boxes often more interesting than the toys because it's often the case that the toys have one way in which you're supposed to play with them. Whereas the box, you can make anything. You can pretend that you're taking the box as your purse and going to Europe. You know, you can make up all kinds of stories with this box, which doesn't have a predetermined function. So playing with children is wonderful, but let them be the cook. 
don't be the chef, don't be the cook. Let them do it, and you follow their lead. I first ran into, in a major way, the whole zero to three first five years of life from George Halverson in 2017. And he explained all about the brain science and the brain science has been around 10, 15, 20 years, but in the United States, well, the brain science has been there and known, accepted pretty much close to universally. The, we haven't gotten around to really do it in a major way. I then asked him to what degree, I've never done a global project, but I've always worried about the gap between the developing countries and developed nations. So is it just applicable in all around the world as it is in the United States? Absolutely. So uh, some of it uh, is dependent on what I call the ideology of infancy. In other words, how do people think about little people? Even in our own country, there are people who think, as you pointed out before, that learning only starts at school. If you believe that learning only starts at school, you're not going to provide children with the opportunities you would otherwise. Well, the same thing is true around the world. So the first step might be to help people understand, regardless of where they are, that little people are like sponges, that they want to learn, that they want to be introduced to new things, that they want to learn the names of objects, and more, they want to learn what those objects do. And if we can change people's mindset to recognizing that children's brains are craving this kind of stimulation, then we can make suggestions about things that one can do with children, just like that study in Jamaica. You don't have to have a million dollars to stimulate your children. In fact, in our own work, we've looked at uh, parents who come from under-resourced environments. There's great variability in how they use language with their children. And despite the fact that some of these families don't have much at all, some of those kids have accelerated language and some don't. Now, why would that be? It's because the parents whose children have the accelerated language believe something different. They believe that if I talk with my child and if I give my child an opportunity to talk back, they're going to learn. So we have to change the mindset and then we can suggest the behaviors that can change around the world. The We've done a lot of research over the last five years and statistics tend to fly over people's heads and people tell me never use statistics because <laughs> people just get bored. But some of it is just stark. And one of them is that around the world, in developing countries, they only spend 2% of their budgets on zero to three and zero to five, which means they've not made it a central policy issue for the most part. And then with the United States, with our foreign aid, less than 1% encourages a zero to three and zero to five. And so now let me ask you this. The um, oh, Here's what I was going to say. George Halverson told me when I asked the question about zero to three and zero to five around the world is that it's brain science. And brain science doesn't know anything about geography. It doesn't know anything about skin color. It doesn't know anything about gender particularly. And it's important wherever you go. 
So does that agree with, with you? Oh, absolutely. But I, I want to point something out. The brain science is now supporting what we have known from behavioral research without wiring kids up for like 30 years. We have known for a very long time that is important to provide children with loving support and stimulation for them to learn enough to succeed in school and in life. The brain science is catching up with that. And it is true for people around the world. We are after all one species. We are the human species. We don't have very tremendous variations in our brains and children's brains all need the kind of stimulation and care and nurturing and interaction. We know this for years. Uh, Roberta, you've known me for many years and you've seen me take on different causes and create different movements. And when you see me in action, uh, what do you hope that Gift Connect and our team, where, where might we have the biggest impact and, and what do you think that you think we can do strongly? It's uh, clear to me that you are very passionate about making a difference in the world. I do. I know you for years. But more importantly, you recognize that one has to be in tune with the beliefs in the culture to make that happen. So, for example, I cannot remember the name of the woman in Africa who I believe you commissioned to write a song about the importance of singing and talking to children. Stella Mengele. Stella Mengele. Yes. And that's the way to go. It's not like, you know, here we come, we're going to tell you what to do. No, it's all in collaboration with communities. And that's what you do. And it's all about coming up with messages that will resonate in a particular culture. And I think you understand that. And that's very important. Absolutely. I, just, I appreciate your underlining that because it really is important. And when you go around the world, uh, the United States has the reputation of here we come and we're going to show you what to do. Exactly. And that, exactly. If you take, that, you take that attitude, you're running backwards instead of forwards. Right. Right. I, I'm not good at running backwards, but when I do it, I appreciate being corrected. The One of the big questions from my life, having started with Bobby Kennedy, and he asked me to join him in Bedford-Stuyvesant and let's get rid of poverty in the United States. I'd like you to talk about the power of zero to three and the impact of missing zero to three in terms of reversing poverty. Can understanding about zero to three be transformational in reversing poverty in America and around the world? I think it's kind of the other way around, if you don't mind me saying so. We have to reduce poverty so that zero to three can be a positive time in children's lives. I mean, look, think about the families we know who work two and three jobs to make ends meet. It's extremely stressful. And how are they going to be able to have conversations with their children when there's no let up when they get home, because then they've started what we call the second shift, which often falls 
disproportionately on women. If people knew that they could count on a decent salary, that they could count on health care, that they could count on good daycare, which is a very serious problem since the pandemic, then I think we would be much more successful in helping them to provide the kinds of stimulation for children zero to three. There are experiments, Sam, that I find very encouraging, but I don't know that our government will ever do this. These experiments give families that are seriously under-resourced, like below the poverty line, money. They either give them 20 or they give them 2,000. There's a study being conducted at Columbia University by Kim Noble. When you give parents money, not 20, but 2,000, it has an impact on children's brain development. Obviously, there's something going on in between the money and the brain development. What is mediating that change? It's the parent's ability to relax enough to have conversations with their children and interact with their children. So reducing poverty is crucially important because even in a country like America, there are tremendous divides and far too many people are below the poverty line. We have to think about this with the boat model. We're all in this together. If some of us sink, we're all gonna sink. So we have to take care of those who are less fortunate and have been crowded out of the economic prosperity that many of us experience. The Thank you for raising all of that. Yeah, every time I ask you a question, I get wonderful answers because you, you're so in-depth in knowledge. It's just spectacular. About 20 years ago in the United States, a number of people in a number of communities really got excited about zero to three, and it just didn't catch on. It seemed to be the timing was wrong. I think that's true. Now, the time is, is now the good time. I, I start to think that around the United States, at least, that and even around the world, uh, more and more people really get it. So, so you think it is the good time now, and can the next 10 yeah. years be transformational? I agree. But you see, you have to look at this historically. People never thought that the preschool years mattered much. Um, Jack Shankoff and his group at Harvard, Frontiers of Innovation, I think made a big dent at that. And then people came to recognize that the preschool years were really important. Now it's time to emphasize even below preschool, because here's why. We know well that children arrive at preschool and then at school, some children, very unprepared. What does that mean? They don't have pencils and paper? No. It means they don't know their colors. They don't know how to write their name. They know so little about the world. They haven't been read books. They don't know that books open from left to right, that print goes from left to right. We're starting to make a bit of a dent on that. And I think it's time to continue 
There is no time that is too early to read to a baby. I know that sounds crazy, but there is no time that is too early. Your baby loves hearing your voice. Your baby loves the cuddle when it's happening. There is no time and children will only profit by it from the beginning. So zero to three is where it's at now. There's no question. We also need to make sure children have wonderful preschools. The research is clear. If you put children into good preschools, they do better. Furthermore, the longitudinal studies show their brains look better when they're adults. I love that finding. Roberta, you have just come out with a new book and it's so exciting. Where can people go to get the book? And tell us something more about the book so everybody will go. I want everybody to go and get Verda's, Roberta's new book. People are interested in how children learn and how education can be improved so that we no longer use the appellation boring, can easily get the book the way they would get any other book. Through the bookstores in their neighborhoods or through the online purveyors. And it's not just a book for people in education. It's a book for people who care about the next generation and who want to stop hearing the complaining because there are very few books that say what we can do differently to help the schools. This book has a plan and we're already using it in Michigan, in schools in Pennsylvania and in New Hampshire. And it's working. Everybody, thank you for being here. And please come to our website, www.gift-connect.org. And then join us on social media, on Facebook and Instagram. We're filled with information, filled with opportunities to help change the world. Come on and join us. We need you. Roberta, I've known for so long that you're just spectacular and just a fountain of information and excitement and guidance. We're just so appreciative of having you with this podcast. Thank you very much. My pleasure.